Well, great to be here. Uh, as uh, Owen uh, alluded to a few moments ago, um, I am going to deliver a meal of uh, some depth uh, today. And I've got to say, um, I'm facing something of an internal struggle, uh, even as I stand here right now, because without wishing to ramp up the expectation levels unhelpfully high, uh, I do believe that today's message has the potential to be the most important sermon you ever hear in your whole life. Coupled with the fact that this sermon also has the potential to offend, confuse, and deeply, deeply, deeply unsettle some of you. And that is why I feel slightly kind of torn this morning and uh, before we go any further I want to enlist God's help I certainly need it and I think probably you might need it at kind of five to ten on a Sunday morning uh, in terms of engaging with the, the depth of this message but with the right balance in terms of challenge and grace as well so let's pray father please come and help us uh, thank you you speak because you care for us uh, thank you your words carry phenomenal power uh, thank you that they cut right to the heart of the issue uh, and they have the potential to change our lives. And we don't want to, this morning, respond to uh, anyone's words but yours. Uh, so Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would help me uh, with the words you've entrusted to me to bring it uh, with sensitivity and care, uh, but with authority and power and clarity in a way that releases and frees and brings people into all the goodness you have for them. Uh, and for each of us, give us ears to hear you. Whatever we want to hear or whatever our own preconceived ideas, let us hear your voice uh, and receive it with faith and hope. Uh, and we ask all of this, Father, for your glory uh, and for our eternal joy. Amen. A few years ago, I had one of the trickiest conversations uh, that I've probably ever had. I I uh, was meeting up with uh, a good friend of mine who had recently walked out on his wife and his kids and was about to jump on a plane and fly halfway around the world to live and move in with a woman that he'd met online. Uh, this was a guy that uh, I used to meet up with regularly to pray when I first moved to Birmingham. His office was just around the corner from where I lived. Uh, pretty much once a week, we'd, we'd, we'd meet up, we'd, we'd pray together, encourage one another. Back then, uh, he was working towards becoming an elder uh, in the church he was in, not this church, another local church. Uh, he had a, a great family. Uh, it was absolutely flying in his career, but over time the demands of his career slowly but surely pulled him away from the church and put increasingly substantial strains on his family life. And in the midst of all of that, we'd still meet up with a degree of regularity, and although he loved a good theological debate, he wasn't the least bit interested in reconnecting with God. But aware of the fact that I might never see him again, uh, I wanted to have one last go to try to appeal to him before he left. And so we met up over lunch and uh, after the kind of niceties were out of the way, I kind of went for the jugular and I warned him with all the passion I could of the consequences of him rejecting God. And this is what he said to me. He said, look, Jonathan, 
even if I don't believe in God anymore, once saved, always saved, right? I mean, you believe that, don't you? And I kind of believe it, which means that even if there is a God and even if Jesus is the only way, I'm kind of safe. Either way, it works out great for me. I I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want with my life. And if there is a God, then it will be fine in the end. Now, what do you say to a person like that? In his mind, there was a point, a very clear, definite point that he could look back to in his life where he thought he'd become a Christian. And all indications were he was very, very sincere for a period of time that there was a lot of fruit that suggested his faith was genuine. I mean, he preached in his local church, he led worship, He carried leadership responsibility in his church. And just for the record, I do believe that the Bible teaches eternal security, that those who are saved by Christ are saved forever. As we're just singing, none can pluck us from his hand. I believe that with all my heart. So was my friend right? Can he, because he made a decision at some point in the past, live with the assurance that he is saved forever, regardless of how he lives now. Well, we're going to be looking at a passage today, Uh, Owen's already flagged it up, Hebrews chapter 6, a passage that addresses this very question. But first of all, while you're finding it perhaps, let me very quickly read three other passages that, at least on the surface, appear to back up the view that once saved, always saved. First one is John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he says, all those, which is pretty comprehensive, all those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. Verse 39, and this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up, at the last day. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. And then Paul in Romans 8, verse 29 says, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. And having chosen them, He called them to come to him, and having called them, he gave them right standing with himself, and having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Or as some other versions put it, those he justified, he also glorified. Doesn't say that some of those he chose and called he glorified. No, once God chooses you, very clear implication here is that he then guards you, protects you all the way through to glory. But with that knowledge, I want us now to read a warning in Hebrews chapter 6 that at the very least, on the surface, appears like it's saying the complete opposite to all of this. Here we go, Hebrews 6 verse 4. For it is impossible, pretty strong word that, it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, 
those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. I don't know what you think. I'd suggest there are a number of challenges here, aren't there? For starters, it on the surface looks like you perhaps can lose your salvation. It refers to those who turn away from God. It's possible to turn away from God. Uh, Even worse, it also sounds like if you do turn away from God, if you lose your salvation, you can never get it back again. The writer says it is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. So here's the plan. Here's what I want to do. I simply want to spend the rest of the time I've got with you to answer three questions that I'm hoping will help us get to the very heart of what this passage is teaching. So three questions, here's the first one. Who's this passage actually being written to? Is it being written to believers or unbelievers? Who's this passage addressing? Well, it does sound, doesn't it, like it's talking about Christians. I mean, who else could the writer be thinking of in verses 4 and 5 where he refers to those who were enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven, have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. Now, when we're faced with a tricky passage, like this one is, it really does help, if we're going to understand it, In fact, it helps with any passage of the Bible to do this. One of the keys to understanding it is asking questions that help us discover what it meant to its first readers. And so, in this instance, it helps to remember that, if you recall from previous talks in this series, the main purpose of this letter is to urge these Jewish Christians not to turn their back on Jesus and slip back into Judaism. And this wasn't just some random hypothetical warning. Now, the people reading this letter would have had very close friends, even family members, who had done that very thing. So as they're reading this warning, they would have been able to visualize real-life people for whom this was incredibly relevant. Friends of theirs who'd been enlightened, who'd shared in the Holy Spirit, who'd tasted the goodness of God's Word. They'd responded to a call to become a follower of Jesus. They had been part of the church family, maybe even got baptized, but then for whatever reason had walked away from it. And now these people were putting considerable pressure on their friends who remained in the church to themselves reject Jesus and go back to their former way of life too. And so, for starters, I think it's probably fair to assume that these warnings here are addressing those who have at least professed to be Christians, but have then turned their back on Jesus. And also, it's addressing those who remain in the church, but are perhaps being tempted to walk away as well. People who, on the outside look like they're going along with everything, but on the inside, it's all really quite superficial. Because let's be honest, in most churches, there are people who 
are just caught up with the whole buzz of it all, but have never really fully 100% dealt with Jesus for themselves. And so they come along and get kind of carried along by the crowd. They sing the songs, maybe if they're really keen, kind of raise their hands occasionally in worship. They say they want to follow Jesus, perhaps get baptized, join a life group, but it never represents a deep, personal embrace of Jesus. And to those people, I believe the warning in this passage is every bit as real as it is serious. To all those who are losing confidence in the gospel and losing the desire to persevere with their faith, the message here could not be clearer. If you walk away from Jesus, you are placing yourself beyond all hope of restoration. Which begs the question, is it then possible for a genuine Christian to lose their salvation? Is it possible for a genuine follower of Jesus to lose their salvation? Now, although that's perhaps the question that a lot of us have got when we read this passage, I don't actually think that's the question being asked by this passage. That the writer's not concerned about whether a genuine believer in Jesus can lose their salvation. His real concern is whether our belief in Jesus is genuine. Now, just in case you're still wondering where I'm coming from here, and I want to keep kind of putting in these comments all the way through, just to be clear, as I've already said, I do believe the Bible teaches that once you've been truly saved, you can't lose it. But it also teaches that one of the signs of genuine faith is that it endures forever. In fact, that's one of the big themes running all the way through this letter to the Hebrews. Earlier on in Hebrews 3 verse 14, it says, for if we're faithful to the end. So it's conditional on this. If we're faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will then share in all that belongs to Christ. Later on in Hebrews 12, 15, we're told, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. So it's possible that we could fail to receive the grace of God. And there are things like bitterness that can work against that. Hebrews 10, verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. But I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And then in Hebrews 6 verse 11, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts. Why? In order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Or as the NIV puts it, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. How do you know you're saved? How can you tell if your faith is genuine? Well, it's pretty simple. The sign of genuine saving faith is it endures to the end. If you remember, Jesus told a really famous story about a farmer that planted a bunch of seeds into various types of 
soil. One soil, he said, had a, a very soft top layer, so young plants sprung up very, very quickly. But because the roots didn't then go down deep enough, when the sun came out, they just withered up and died. And Jesus went on to liken this to, to people who appear to believe for a while, but in a time of testing or pressure, then fall away. It's like they had an incredibly encouraging beginning, but ultimately their faith withered and came to nothing. Listen, praying a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, even if it's followed by a flurry of emotion and religious activity, is not in and of itself proof that you're saved. Enduring in that faith to the end is. So, I think it's true that once truly saved, always saved, it's also true that once saved, forever following. In other words, if salvation has really taken place in your heart, if it's really put down roots, it never fades away. You stumble, yes. You fall, perhaps often. But you always get back up looking at Jesus. Now look, I'm aware this raises some pretty big questions for us about what that means when maybe we stumble and fall, or for a season our faith calls, and I promise you I will get to those questions in, in a few moments. But first, I just want to look a little more deeply at this statement in verse 4, where it says, it is impossible to bring back to repentance those have fallen away. Verse 4, it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Verse 6, by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. What does that mean? Well, here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that those who fall back into sinful habits after they're saved have forfeited all their chances of salvation. How do I know that? Well, even the greatest heroes of faith fell back into old sinful habits, some really bad ones, sometimes for pretty long periods of time. Peter, for example, remember, he, he, he denied Jesus three times in the space of one evening. David, one of the greats of the Old Testament, he committed adultery, murder, then lied about it, refused to repent for nearly a year. Abraham, whom the writer of Hebrews uses at the end of this chapter as an example of persevering faith, there's an occasion that he doubted God so severely that he told another guy that his wife was not his wife but his sister and this other guy could sleep with her just so Abraham could save his own skin. And yet all of these people were brought back to a place of repentance, restoration and great usefulness for the kingdom of God. Remember John 6, 37 that we looked at earlier where Jesus said that he would never, for any reason, cast out anyone who came to him. Which means that if you are willing to repent, he will always receive you with arms open wide. Always. So what then does the writer mean when he says it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who have fallen away. Well, in several places, 
Bible talks about rejecting God's voice so often and so decisively that God finally honors our refusal and leaves us alone forever. God said, right back at the beginning, Genesis 6 verse 3, that my spirit will not put up with humans forever when there's so much sin and wrongdoing that I guess the point where it says enough. In the New Testament, Mark 3, 29, Jesus refers to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit where you say no to God so deliberately and so persistently that God finally says, well, have it your way then. And he says that's a sin for which there is no forgiveness. And I think that is the point being made here by the author of Hebrews. He's saying, look, if you have personally seen the glory of Jesus and you've been convinced of the truth of his resurrection, only then to return intentionally to your sin, what else is there left for me to say? I mean, if you reject the very means of salvation, if you shun Christ's love and forgiveness that's poured out for you on the cross, then surely it's then impossible for you to be saved. Or if you've understood the gospel, if intellectually you're convinced it's true, but you're still not moved to repentance, you're not drawn more passionately towards Jesus, is there anything left that you can hear? Jesus died in your place on the cross to satisfy the righteous justice of God so that you could now be brought into the family of God and relate to him as your father. If you hear that and you're thinking, yeah, I believe that, but you just don't think it's important enough to do anything about, well, what hope is there for you? Look, It makes sense to me to walk away from all of this stuff because you look at it and you decide you just can't believe it. Well, that makes sense. What doesn't make sense to me is to believe it and then just have an apathetic response to it. For it to affect your life just a little bit. For you to casually go to church when it suits. That makes no sense to me at all. The gospel is that the punishment you deserve is so bad, so serious, that none other than Jesus had to die for you. And he was so loving, he was glad to die for you. In my mind, there are only two logical responses to that that make any sense. One is complete unbelief. The other is falling on your knees in absolute surrender or maybe a third response I can't need to think about this some more and look into it some more so I can work out whether I'm going to reject it or give my life to it so maybe a third response as well but all that being said question number three how do I know then if I'm a genuine Christian I hear all of that but that doesn't necessarily help me how do I know if my faith is real Well, first things first, let me quickly deal with a couple of common concerns. So a couple of free questions lobbed in under question number three. So five questions in all, really. Here's the the, the first concern. You you might be thinking this, and and if this is your question, I want to engage with it properly. You might be thinking, 
what can I do if I think I might have committed the unforgivable sin? Maybe you're thinking that, maybe you're wondering that, maybe you're fearful of that. Let me just say, if you're here today and you are worried that you might have committed this sin, you probably haven't. You see, the final falling away that Jesus and the writer of Hebrews is referring to here includes the removal of any desire whatsoever to be reconciled to Jesus. And so being fearful about having reached the point of no return is probably good proof that you haven't. If you want to repent, if you want to get right with God, Jesus will always make a way. He will always receive you. Remember, he won't cast out any who come to him. Or maybe there's someone here who has maybe never fully come to Christ. And you hear all these warnings, and maybe you think, well, maybe that's what's happened to me. I feel like I could have fallen away after being enlightened, so now does that mean it's impossible for me to repent? Or you read verses 7 and 8 here where it says, when the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, then it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it's useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. And you think, well, oh, if I'm the field that produces thorns and thistles every now and again, then does that mean I'm condemned? Does it mean it's useless? I, I mean, I once heard the gospel. I didn't respond then. And so maybe I'm unsavable now. Listen, the Bible never tells us to speculate about whether or not God can save us. It simply commands us to repent. If you hear God's voice, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 15, if you hear God's voice, obey today. That means if you are listening to this right now, the choice is still yours. You have the opportunity and the obligation right now to repent. And if you obey it, God will save you. Because the gospel message is that actually your heart is indeed fatally flawed, spiritually dead to be exact. But the good news of the gospel is that God makes dead hearts new. God, in the words of Ezekiel 36, verse 26, turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and brings life back from the dead. I mean, he, he's had a transform, a guy called Saul, who was a Jesus-hating murderer, enemy number one of the early church, that had grab hold of him and transform into Paul, his greatest spokesperson and advocate. And he can do the same for you too. You just have to ask him. So please, as you listen to this, don't turn what the writer intended to be an encouragement to repent into a discouragement from it. He's not trying to help you determine whether or not you've been chosen by God. He's trying to communicate to you the seriousness of the gospel you've heard and urge you to obey it today. So that's one concern. Here's another one. This one's really common. What if I'm not sure I've ever become a Christian? What if I can't remember an exact point that I've become a Christian? Does that mean 
I'm not one. It's not helped by the fact. I think we tend, don't we, to celebrate sudden and dramatic conversions. But for many people, there's more a case of a slow, gradual process where the response to Christ took place over a period of time. For others who perhaps grew up in a, a Christian family l- like I did, and as far back as you can remember it, it kind of feels like you've always believed. It can be hard, can't it, to remember an exact moment when you became a Christian. You know, not knowing when you became a Christian can be a huge source of anxiety for people who are trying to work out if their salvation is real and genuine. And it can threaten to rob them of all assurance. But this passage goes on to show that it is still possible to have assurance. Despite the warnings that the writer gives about the dangers of falling away, the writer of Hebrews says that for most of these people, he's convinced of better things. In verse 9 he says, Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We're confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. It's like he looks at this church. He sees so much fruit in their life. He sees their love for God. He sees their working hard for him. He sees their care for others in the church, all of which proves to him that their faith is real. Their faith is genuine. Nonetheless, he still exhorts them in verse 11, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Do you see what he's saying? Persevere. Keep going. Keep growing. Why? Because the faith that saves is the faith that endures. Once you're truly saved, you can never lose it. But once you're saved, you'll also never stop following. It's like by heeding the warning here, you show that your hope is real. By not heeding it, you show you perhaps never had the hope to begin with. So again, it's once saved, always saved, but also once saved, forever following. So, today, if you are still going on with God, and there's fruit in your life that provides evidence of your growing love for Him, then you can have assurance that your faith is genuine. But maybe you're thinking, ah, I still don't know. I mean, I struggle with sin. I mean, sometimes I do fall back. You you know what? Sometimes I I have very real doubts. Sometimes I I go through these seasons and it feels like my, my faith grows cold. Does that mean I'm not saved? Look, every Christian has times when it's as though they backslide into sin. Backsliding is one of those kind of churchy terms that refers to falling back into old sinful habits. And we all do it. But that doesn't mean that we aren't saved. 
guess the question we've got is, well, how long then can you backslide before you then have to conclude that your initial profession of faith wasn't real to start with? Was, what, what's the magic number? Is it kind of six months, six years, six hours? Just help me. Just tell me that the magic number, then I'll know. The reality is we just don't know. There's no clear answer on this because the Bible never specifies a time limit. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, some of the greatest Bible heroes fell back into sin for, in some cases, pretty considerable periods of time before God then brought them back to their senses. Then there are, the, there are others, the Apostle John goes on to say later on, who went out from us because they were not really of us. At the end of the day, we can speculate all we like, but let's not miss the point. As Jesus put it, you will know them by their fruit. So knowing the exact moment of your conversion, I don't think is essential. What is essential is that you know you are now. And the way you can tell is by the fruit of repentance and faith that your life is producing. Really? Best way to know is that you have genuinely repented and put your faith in Jesus in the past is if you are currently living with a posture of repentance and faith today. Let me give you an illustration. This chair here, I want you to imagine that it represents the lordship of Jesus over every area of your life, also represents the fact that Jesus has paid for all of your sins. He has finished all of your salvation forever. So that's what this chair represents. You'll all be wanting to sit on it later perhaps, but uh, just imagine that's what this chair stands for. Now, if you like, at some point in your life, you kind of walk up to this chair, you, you, you give it a good inspection, you, you examine it, you, you try to pull it apart, you see it's pretty substantial. Uh, and over a period of time, you become confident in the fact that Jesus has paid it all. And you're willing to acknowledge him as Lord over every area of your life. And so there comes a point where you decide in faith to sit down on this chair, to acknowledge Jesus is now Lord over every area of my life. I sit on his finished work for me on the cross. Now here's the thing, if you have a look round, most people in the room, I mean do look round, most people in the room are currently sitting on a seat. But how do you know you made a decision to sit on that seat? Is it because you can remember when you sauntered into this room, kind of maybe an hour ago, 45 minutes ago, uh, and you had a look round and you thought, okay, that's the seat I want. And you can remember the exact moment you weighed it all up and you thought, will that seat support my weight? And am I confident that sitting down is going to be a better experience than standing up for the meeting? Can you remember the exact moment you sat down on that seat and your thought processes leading up to it? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Now, if you can't remember... Does that throw into question the reality of you sitting on that seat? No. Maybe you, you can remember the moment you made the decision, maybe you can't. But actually it's your present posture that is better evidence, better proof than your past memory. 
Now, in the same way, how do you know if you have adopted a posture of repentance and faith towards Jesus? It's because you're in one now. Knowing when you are seated, that is helpful. But knowing that you're seated now, that's the more important thing. Listen, as a believer, you will struggle at times with indwelling sin, even for the rest of your life. To to quote one of the Proverbs, Proverbs 24, verse 16, the godly may trip seven times. It might feel like it keeps on happening. It goes on to say they will get up again. And so the proof of your salvation isn't that you never fall, I think is what direction you look when you get up. And the people who genuinely believe the gospel get back up looking to Jesus. As a guy called Tom Schreiner put it, perseverance is not perfection, it's a new direction. I don't know. Maybe you struggle a lot. It's like every day you're you're fighting different temptations. But the trajectory of your life points heavenwards. And your whole life is like this regular cry for God to change your heart. You, You desperately want to become more like Jesus, even though it's a struggle. I don't worry about you. The ones I worry about are those who don't live without struggle, who in reality are content with staying as they are, not all that interested in becoming more like Jesus, or not all that bothered about dealing with areas of compromise in their lives. I tell you, I worry about you. I really do. My concern is for those who are just kind of going through the motions, those who are participating in church like it's more a club or a social organization, there's not a whole lot of evidence of a desire for God. There's not a whole lot of life change to become more like Jesus. Or maybe you don't think twice about going out and getting drunk. Couldn't care less about sexual purity can't remember the last time you opened your bible outside of a sunday morning certainly don't come here with an attitude of i wonder how i can serve i wonder how i could use my gifts to be a blessing to others it's it's more about what you can get out of it oh and i mention those things genuine is not to make you feel guilty about not doing them because now going away and starting to do them that's not going to make you a christian But if you're content, if you're satisfied in not growing, isn't that a strong sign you've never really experienced the gospel? This passage is a warning to you. It is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to, to those of you who think that because maybe you prayed a prayer at some point in the past, well, now everything's okay, even though right now you're not walking with Jesus or you're not actively looking to become more like him. Which I think is where the writer's coming from in verse 11, where he says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Look, if you're not diligently walking with Jesus today, It does raise the question of the reality of any decision you made to follow him in the past. 
You see, the full assurance of hope comes only from resting in Jesus in the present because the faith that saves is the faith that endures. Now look, as I flagged up at the beginning, I know that in giving a warning like this, that there may be true, genuine believers here who are just a little rattled, a bit unsettled. And I very much feel that tension in talking like this. But here's the bottom line. The Bible doesn't hold back from giving both warnings and assurances. When you emphasize the warnings, sometimes those the warnings aren't intended for can get unsettled and fearful. But if all you talk about are the assurances, then there's a danger that superficial believers may never be awakened to repentance and could end up in hell. I believe both the warnings and the assurances are important. Like in one place, the Bible tells us to examine yourselves, to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. But in another, it tells us that even when we're faithless, he will remain faithful. There's this tension running through this. And I've got to say, I feel it intensely. But through it all, the key question I just want to leave you with, the key question I I want you to go away today considering is simply this. What is the present posture of your heart? What's the present posture of your heart? Return to the chair illustration. This chair represents the fact that Jesus paid for all your sin and he's Lord. The question is right now, are you seated in submission to his Lordship over your life? Or are you standing in defiance saying you're going to live your way, you're in control of your life. You're either seated in trust in Christ's finished work being enough to secure your eternal salvation or standing in the hope that you can get through life in your own power and your own wisdom. So where are you? Are you seated in repentance and faith or standing in rebellion and unbelief? As we've seen, the faith that saves is the faith that endures. So what's the present posture of your heart? Let's pray.